So this evening I'd like to uh, speak about uh, mindful communication in the context of the uh, path of awakening. And as I uh, begin the talk, I'd like to invite you to uh, practice, if you, if you wish, both inner and outer awareness at the same time. Remember that? And to um, see how it's possible in listening to a talk to cultivate a sense of presence, a sense of uh, being connected to yourself at the same time that you're listening to a talk. So I'll invite that and I'll intend to practice that myself. Okay? So, okay. (laughs) Set my intention. Um, I remember when I was uh, starting to do more talks at Spirit Rock. It was about, uh, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, doing more teaching here. And at the time, I was working a a lot with uh, John Travis, again, who's, uh, we teach quite a bit together at this point. And he gave me guidance for giving talks. And the guidance was, you know, do whatever preparation you need to do. But then in giving the talk, stay connected to your body, stay connected to your heart, and let your thoughts self-organize. And it's a very interesting practice. And um, it's one of the practices that's been important for me. I want to talk really uh, about four areas. The the first is to talk about the importance of speech practice in our lives at this time. And secondly, talk about the place of mindful communication in the larger journey of awakening of becoming free, of becoming more uh, wise, more compassionate, more loving. And then thirdly, I want to focus in particular on one of the further tracks for developing mindful communication, which are the uh, ethical guidelines that were given historically by the the Buddha and that are uh, a main way that skillful speech or mindful communication is um, talked about traditionally. And it's an important track. And then lastly, I want to continue that further track some about talking about the place of mindfulness in our, in our practice, in our practice of uh, skillful speech. So I think we know that speech is so crucial that a few words can uh, either trigger us and lead sometimes to quite a bit of suffering, and a few words can also be tremendously healing. It's rather amazing that these words, what are words? These vibrations sent out in space that connect with socially... Uh, agreed upon meanings. It's quite mysterious that I can say a few words and it can have an effect of either leading towards suffering or towards healing. Quite amazing. One of my uh, favorite cartoons comes from The New Yorker and this is more about how words can be triggering very easily. And this is uh, a cartoon that shows uh, a woman sitting on a couch. In front of her is a uh, police officer who's standing. Actually, he's probably more like a detective. He's standing up and he has like a notepad. And then uh, in back of the couch, there is a police officer. And you can also sort of see on the uh, floor 
sticking out from behind the couch are two legs. And the woman says to the detective, I misspoke, he misheard, shots rang out. I think we laugh because that's quite familiar, <laughs> right? That's, that speech can be like that, you know, a few words, especially if they're by our loved ones who, who had said knows our, know our buttons very well because they installed them <laughs> in many cases. Um, so there can be speech that uh, can trigger us. A few words can lead to conflict, to breakdown in relationships, and even to violence. I think we know that. It's amazing the power of words. And um, Socrates, the, the Greek philosopher and mentor to Plato, said about 2,500 years ago, the misuse of language induces evil in the soul. It's interesting. Right? And yet also, speech can be tremendously healing. We, we know that uh, when we're in need, there's a difficult time. And someone who just actually probably doesn't even have to say much can just listen to me speaking and I can feel understood. It's tremendously powerful, right? And maybe a person saying a few words to show that there's understanding and there's care, there's empathy. And certain situations can be life-saving and can be a tremendous force for connection, healing, coming unstuck, right? Coming, even coming out of being triggered. So tremendous, uh, tremendous value from, from uh, speech. And there can be this uh, aspiration to have our speech be something which really brings forth our best qualities. I think that's, that's really the aspiration of mindful communication. May my speech bring forth my, my wisdom, my mindfulness. May, maybe, maybe they all be connected. And I, I was looking and I found you know, that this sense of mindful communication or wise speech or whatever we call it really is found in multiple traditions. You know, we're making use particularly of some of what we find from Buddhist tradition, but we also are using a contemporary approach, nonviolent communication. And this is, uh, this is from the uh, Christian Bible, the letter of James. If any among you professes to be religious, but doesn't bridle one's tongue and deceives one's own heart, this person's religion is in vain if you don't take care of your speech. But if anyone offends not in word, that is a perfect person. <laughs> I changed the gender-related languages here. You might have, might have been able to discern that. And this is from the, from the uh, Lakota tradition, indigenous tradition. The uh, chief uh, Wabasha advised the younger members of his tribe to guard their tongue in youth so that in age, their matured thoughts would be of service to the people. To practice mindful communication and to really see it, it sounds like, as a lifetime practice. And so we're, that's, that's our path. That's what we're really uh, offering. In the Jewish tradition, there's uh, a great teacher named uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Some of you know his his work. He was a contemporary mystic uh, born in Nazi Germany and escaped. Uh, he was a rabbi and a mystic and an activist and he came to the U.S. and he's also well known for walking with uh, Dr. King, you know, probably best known um, for the, the march uh, across the, I think it's across the bridge at Selma. Was, it, was that the, am I thinking of the right one? Anyway, it was, it was a march that was, you know, there was quite a lot of violence. It was 1965. And he, he spoke, a term he used quite often was holiness in words. That was 
that was his aspiration, to develop that sense of his speech really being connected with his, his deeper values. And so the, the really connects with the second theme I wanted to explore, which is how do we understand mindful communication in the context of the larger intention to awaken, to become free, to develop qualities like mindfulness, loving kindness, wisdom, compassion, equanimity, and so forth. How do we, how do we uh, connect our, our communication practice with that? And we, we can think of that aim of awakening in a few different ways. We can think of it as developing those qualities. In the Buddhist tradition, there are a number of qualities which are called the factors of awakening. You know, qualities like mindfulness and uh, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, and there are a lot of others that we could really add that are qualities that uh, as we develop them, we come to awaken more. And as we are more awake, those qualities manifest. We can think of awakening in terms of coming to our deep nature. Again, coming to that luminosity I spoke about, I spoke about last time. I think I have, yeah. This is, this, this is from the words of the Buddha. Luminous are this mind and heart, brightly shining, but they are colored by the attachments that visit them. This unlearned people, or those who do not practice, do not really understand, and so they don't cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous are this mind and heart, brightly shining, and free of the attachments that visit them. This the practitioner really understands, so for them, there is cultivation of the mind and heart. So there's an inherent uh, beauty, luminosity that's taken to be our birthright and it gets covered over. And we practice really to touch that, that deeper nature, to come to that, that freedom. Sometimes in Buddhist tradition, it's understood as the... Uh, um, the working through of greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, of that, which are taken to be the forces that block our inherent um, awakening. And there's, there's um, perhaps most helpful in this context is that there's a very clear uh, path to awakening. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, this is called the Noble Eightfold Path, you know, which is a... a a set of interconnected factors that we work on. And again, very interestingly, uh, what's usually translated as right speech is one of the eight factors. You know, I, I love that because again, I think there can be an image of all those monks and nuns just practicing silently. But again, they, were, they took uh, speech as a primary practice. Very, very interesting. And just a word on the terminology, the word that's uh, translated as right in right speech is sama, S-A-M-M-A. And I think it's, again, we, we uh, suffer some from Victorian era translations like mindfulness or loving kindness. And I think right is another one that is, uh, can be problematic. And the actual word sama has more to do with the quality of maturity or uh, actually realization. So we could say that it is mature speech. And the actual word is connected with words that we have also in English, that you know, the languages of the Buddha and of India, Pali and Sanskrit are Indo-European languages. And so there actually are commonalities with many European languages. And so the word sama is connected with words like summary or words connoting some completion some realization, and that's a better way of understanding what's being pointed to here. So we're talking about mature speech, or we sometimes say wise speech, well-developed speech, and that, that's, that's an important one, because perhaps for some of us, we heard the phrase uh, right speech, and it can be off-putting sometimes. It sounds, can sound moralistic, right? And yet, so this is one of the factors of the path of awakening, and it's, generally speaking, um, there are these eight factors. Three of them are more in the context of action linked with speech. 
and those are right uh, speech or, or mature speech, uh, mature livelihood, and then uh, what's called mature action, which is really about following the other, other ethical precepts. So three of the eight are about how we act, how we live ethically. And three, uh, three of them are about meditation. There's a mature concentration, there's mature mindfulness, and there's mature effort, which is especially the effort to be present, to really be with the situation and to be able to uh, essentially have the effort to develop good habits and work through bad ones. It's a lot of what uh, wise effort or right effort or mature effort means. And then there are two factors that are connected with wisdom. The first is, is called typically uh, right understanding or wise understanding, sometimes translated as wise view, really is how we understand things. And I'll, t- I'll talk a little bit more about that. And then the, the other is wise intention or wise aspiration. And so there, again, we see a lot of the core uh, capacities that we're already been emphasizing, intention, having a clear understanding of things. Now, what's really interesting, and I, I didn't fully realize this until a while ago, is that uh, these factors are seen as intimately connected and they support each other. I was thinking about this originally in the context of mindfulness getting so popular in the mainstream. Right? And one of the uh, dangers of that and part of just what seems to be happening is that mindfulness gets presented as a technique for awareness, but it's not necessarily connected to wisdom and ethics. Right? And that, that is sometimes the case in the way mindfulness is entering the mainstream and has been sometimes the case historically as well, you know, that meditative techniques have sometimes been used for bad purposes or, ne- or sometimes not so clearly. Like it's, it's well documented, for example, that in the first half of the 20th century, uh, Japanese militarism was very connected with the Zen Buddhist establishment. And they later said that we disconnected our meditation too much from ethics. And I've, I've been present at apologies where they, where they said that. And so very crucial point that our work with speech in this case is really closely connected with the other ethical pre, uh, precepts that we looked at uh, the first evening. When was that first evening? <laughs> was that last night? I think so. Does, how many people feel like we've been here at least three or four days? Okay. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Okay. But um, I feel that way myself, but I, I know with my intellectual mind that it's actually been less than 24 hours. Or just about 24 hours we started. And, and so we, we, looked at the, um, we looked at the ethical precepts, and, and so skillful speech is connected with the other ethical precepts. That is, it's connected with not harming. And we'll see that more, how that comes up in the way that that uh, skillful speech is talked about traditionally. But very importantly, it's intimately connected with mindfulness. It's intimately connected with wisdom, that we have to cultivate all these qualities with loving kindness, which isn't one of the factors on the Eightfold Path, but it really could be said to be part of of the uh, factors that we're developing. And so, and, and so, skillful speech has to be very connected with our cultivation of wisdom and our ability to see what factors lead to suffering and what lead to freedom. Often wisdom is most simply understood traditionally in terms of these teachings uh, of what are called the Four Noble Truths, the teaching that there is in human life a certain amount of suffering. And that's often the starting point for practice. For some people, finding that there's suffering, there are ways that we get stuck, get lost, have difficulties. Um, And I think very importantly, uh, there's a, a teaching which I like to give almost every retreat. 
uh, which is called the teaching of the two arrows, which really explicates more clearly what is meant by suffering. Because the, the aim of the path is to transform suffering. And yet suffering doesn't mean the same thing as the presence of the unpleasant. And there's almost like a technical distinction, we might say, between the presence of the unpleasant or what we could call that which is painful and the reactions to that. And I'll I'll bring this out in this teaching. Uh, Once the Buddha was asking his practitioners, everyone experiences the unpleasant at times. So what differentiates a practitioner from a non-practitioner? Everyone has unpleasant experiences and we could say that we all sometimes have unpleasant bodily experiences. We have uh, vulnerable bodies. We can be injured. We can have uh, difficult experiences. We all sometimes get ill. We uh, get injured at times. And of course, we, we, all, um, we all die. And the, the, the process can also be not very pleasant. It doesn't have to be, but sometimes it is. And so, in that sense, we all are vulnerable to the unpleasant being there sometimes. And similarly, we can have unpleasant emotions at times. We know we can have difficult emotions. We can have anger, sadness, despair, fear, and so forth, which can be difficult for us and even painful to have those emotions present. We can have painful experiences of being treated unfairly or unjustly. And these are experiences which all of us may have. And the Buddha said that's like uh, the fact that we sometimes have those experiences is like being shot by an arrow. And he says to have the unpleasant present is like being shot by the arrow. And he called that the first arrow. And he said what differentiates the practitioner from the non-practitioner is not whether they're shot by the first arrow. Everyone at times is shot by the first arrow. But he said, here's what the difference is. The non-practitioner, because of the presence of the unpleasant, or you might say the presence of the unpleasant, tends, when there's not awareness and wisdom, tends to shoot a second arrow as if that would help take care of things. And so what does that look like, that second arrow? This is actually, to me, the most direct expression of the core teaching of the whole tradition, expressed quite simply in this way. And how does that second arrow manifest? On a physical level, it can manifest by us um, tensing around physical discomfort or the presence of the unpleasant physically. It can manifest in tightening and contracting. In, and we know that uh, this is a source of stress, And we know that um, many, much research has shown that a very large percentage of what people with chronic pain experience, for example, is not the original pain, but it's the reaction to the pain. As much as 80 or 90% of what people experience as pain, um, if they have chronic pain, is the reaction. It's the tensing you know, we know that can contribute to stress. So it's no coincidence that perhaps the first place for intervention using meditation in the medical field was with people with chronic pain because they could learn not to shoot the second arrow and reduce huge amounts of pain, right? So interesting. Emotional, emotionally shooting the second arrow is probably much more familiar to us, right? Although we probably know how we tense around and we can watch how we do that uh, on retreat. And we know that uh, we also can do that uh, emotionally. And then we can see it very clearly with speech. You know, again, someone says something to me, I don't like it, I react right back. One person shoots a first arrow at me, I shoot a second arrow back, or something like that. You know, that we, we can see that with speech, we can see that something happens to me I don't like, I judge myself, I blame someone else, I react, I go into a funk, I get depressed, I sign up for a retreat. 
Not necessarily in that order. <laughs> but I think that that second arrow is familiar emotionally and interpersonally, right? It happens all the time. And what the, what the uh, practitioner learns, I think, are two things. Really, three things, maybe. The first is to be able to be with the first arrow without shooting the second arrow. To be able to be with the unpleasant, an unpleasant sensation, an unpleasant uh, emotion, an unpleasant interaction without reacting. Now, one, that doesn't mean one doesn't respond. We can distinguish between reaction and response. Reaction is more compulsive and unconscious. And so we can learn to be with physical pain in meditation and notice the tendency to react, to contract, to tense. We can do the same with difficult emotions in meditation. So we can first learn how to be with the first arrow. Then we can watch the tendencies to shoot the second arrow. This will be a fundamental aspect to our speech practice, particularly when we focus on trigger statements like we were talking about before or challenging situations. Can I be mindful and study my tendencies to react and learn increasingly not to react? Again, we can respond. And part of what we'll learn with the nonviolent communication are more skillful ways to respond. So this isn't at all about being passive or not responding, but it's noticing that so many of our reactions actually lead to further suffering. We know that. We know we shoot the second arrow, we can get we can lead to a lot of suffering. It's it's clear interpersonally, it's clear in terms of conflicts. Large number of conflicts are one person shooting the second arrow at another who shoots the second arrow back, and of course then we go on to the third, the fourth, the fifth arrow, right? And you look at conflicts in the world, they're so often second arrow affairs. You know, one group has received pain. We will inflict pain on you because you cause pain to me, right? As if that's going to help. And it actually leads to further, further conflict, further suffering. So this is a deep teaching. And I think this is at the heart of the core teaching about the, in, of the Four Noble Truths. What we can learn is to, first of all, be able to be more with the unpleasant when it's there, and not be so reactive. We can learn to see our patterns of shooting the second arrow. And we can learn better responses to a situation that are not reactive, in which we don't shoot the second arrow. So very crucial teaching. That really is a way of unpacking the basic understanding of the path of awakening. That first is that we suffer, that there we get caught in suffering because in a sense, shooting the second arrow, we can define as suffering. The first arrow is the unpleasant. We can have the unpleasant possible without suffering in that sense. So I'm using uh, suffering a little bit in a technical sense as meaning shooting the second arrow, reacting. We, in English, we often use it synonymously with uh, pain, but here, distinguishing between pain. So we often say pain is a given of human experience Suffering is optional. And I, I sometimes teach in Kentucky, and one of my last trips there, I met a, a nurse, and she said that one of her patients who was in hospice was a double amputee. And at the foot of her bed, she had the sign, pain is a given, suffering is optional. Interesting, right? And so the, there, there is this suffering and there's a cause to the suffering, traditionally it's said, which is that reactivity, that compulsive pushing away or grabbing hold of something. And it's possible to be with situations without that suffering. In other words, it's possible to be with whatever comes up without shooting the second arrow, which is entering into suffering. And then there's a path to overcome suffering, which is this path that I've outlined. And so speech practice is particularly vital, and I think it's particularly vital for us in this culture because it's such a core practice for our relational life. And in my my view, we haven't developed so 
so well yet in our tradition and lineage, uh, relational practices. We've done quite well sitting in silent meditation. Beautiful practices can go very deeply, wonderful. How do we translate that and develop practices like speech practice, which are so crucial for our relational lives, our families, our partners, our friends, our work life, our life in the community, and so forth. And speech is right at the center of all of that. And so the, the way that it's connected with this path is that we try to connect speech practice with these other factors, mindfulness, other ethical principles, and wisdom. And, and it's an integral piece and so crucial for our contemporary lives. And it's challenging, right? It's, it's, you know, the practices are hard and we don't always have so much support for them. The traditional teaching that we've received uh, from the Buddhist tradition is what I'm calling another important track for developing skillful uh, speech. And this, these are essentially giving um, guidelines, ethical guidelines for our speech. We might call them ethical guidelines or almost like behavioral guidelines, guidelines that we can compare to how we're actually acting. And they can be guidelines for our, for our action in the world. I, uh, let me read a, I'll read a passage. This is a summary, one summary of the guidelines. And in the way I reconstruct it, I, try to, I talk about four basic qualities of our speech that the Buddha is pointing to. And this will be another core reference point for our speech practice. Mm-hmm. Are we following the guidelines? So there are four guidelines. Sometimes they're five, sometimes a different number. But as I reconstruct them, there are four of them. And the four are first, being truthful. Secondly, speaking in a helpful way. Thirdly, speaking out of a kind heart. And fourth, speaking appropriately. And there's an especial emphasis, historically actually, on good timing. Is this the right time for what I have to say? And I'll say a little bit about all of these. And the crucial point here is that all four of them have to be together. Very crucial point. We can't, sometimes we say, I'll just be truthful. And we can be truthful and actually not very helpful, come out of a mean-spirited heart and have horrible timing. And we can actually have three of them be really good and have bad timing and still mess up. Okay, so all these have to be done together. This is, this is from one of the passages from the Buddha. And he talks about five factors, but I think that you'll see that two of them are about that quality of kindness or warmth. A statement endowed with five factors is well-spoken, not ill-spoken. It is blameless and unfaulted by knowledgeable people. Which five? It is spoken at the right time. That's the last one. It is spoken in truth. It's the first one. It is spoken affectionately. It's the third one. It is spoken beneficially. That's the uh, second one. It is spoken with a mind of goodwill. So I, I connected that with, the, with affection. So let me say a little bit about each of those and talk about how we bring that into practice. And these, these are actually both uh, guidelines for our speaking, for our practice, and they're also uh, like sparks for our mindfulness, right? We, if we notice ourselves, oh, I'm not being truthful right now. Hmm, what's that about? And we can actually look into it. So the first one, truthfulness, is sometimes said to be the outer aspect of wisdom. It's related to clear seeing. And it's the verbal mind speaking out of the mind of wisdom, speaking truthfully, seeing clearly, which is often understood as the nature of wisdom. And it's really an invitation, particularly to see when do we depart from uh, truthfulness? 
when do, and it's an invitation to mindfulness. What's happening? Are there times when I don't speak truthfully? Probably some of us occasionally tell flat out untruths. More often probably for us, we'll find things like um, um, omissions, exaggerations, um, statements for the cultivation of self-image, and so forth. You know? But it's very, it's very helpful to see the, the, the ways that we actually may, um, may not tell the truth. And we're invited to really look into that, what, what happens. You know, so I was think I, I know for myself, um, when I was a teenager, like like most teenagers, I thought my that my body was not formed quite right. From discussing things with people, I think this is close to universal. Does anyone relate to that? Anyone have a sense that something is for me? It was, um, I thought my ears were too big and stuck out too much. And I thought that my feet were too big. And I, I sometimes tell this story and I, I sometimes get notes from people saying, I really think your ears and your feet are fine. <laughs> Which helps me to heal from the wounds of being a teenager, you know. Um, but that would, and so when I would actually, someone would ask me, what size shoe do you wear? Which people don't ask me these days, but as a teenager, I think I, people asked that a lot for some reason, right? I don't know if it was in your subculture, but I remember people, I guess we were always getting new shoes or something. I don't know what it was, but, um, anyway, I would, and I would always, um, I would always decrease my size by one half or one. (laughs) <laughs> and they were still pretty big. I mean, I sometimes had size 12 shoes and I would, I would say 11 or 11 and a half as if that would really make the situation better. <laughs> you know, so this is, so if I, <laughs> if I had been uh, instructed on, on um, mindful communication at that age, which I was not, I, would, I would, would have investigated that. I would have looked into that. Or we can look into half-truths or look into omissions or um, you know, maybe more deeply ways that we're not truthful about really important matters in our lives, which is a, sort of a more significant aspect, the way that I might not be truthful about how I really feel about this job or that relationship or something else in my life. Right? So the... Uh, aspiration of truthfulness is partly about our speech, but it's also maybe partly about how we talk to ourselves and quite important. And so again, we can use, we can use the, the uh, guideline on truthfulness as a way to uh, both guide our, our speech and our action and also be a way to uh, uh, cultivate mindfulness. If we find ourselves exaggerating or omitting something, we can say, what's going on? Okay, Donald, how do I feel about my shoes? And we might be able to do some, some investigation with that. So um, a second, the second guideline is to be helpful. And again, very crucial, these all have to be together. We know that it's very possible to be truthful and not helpful and not come out of a good heart. This is sometimes called dumping, right? That we know that I can, I can use truth as a weapon, right? I can do that sometimes, so we want to look into that. Again, so you see that these guidelines are great for investigating our daily life speech, like to have to remember these, you know, and I've some, I worked once with a group just on these guidelines for six months. And we were meeting every two weeks and we would take one guideline for a month, right? And work with it and look at it and try to investigate. We can do that with all of these. So we can really uh, see how much of my speech is helpful. Is it coming out of a wish to benefit another person? You know, or is it, is it not helpful? Is it more... Is it more self-centered or is it actually negative? Am I actually trying to, to hurt someone or put down someone? 
We want to look at that. And that's, that's what this guideline helps with. This is from the, from the text. One avoids harsh language and abstains from harsh language. What's, one speaks such words as are gentle, soothing to the ear, loving such words as go to the heart and are courteous, friendly, and agreeable. So the third guideline is that of coming from a kind heart, we might say, or it's really with the, the heart of metta, increasingly, and having that quality of, of warmth. This is, you see, this is a, there's a very nice way to say it that uh, comes from, this is from uh, a survey of a four to eight-year-old who were asked, what does love mean? Billy, age four, talked about uh, this third criterion of right speech. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. (laughs) And so this is really, we practice metta in part to bring that quality of warmth and kindness. And then we'll also, in the NBC training, we'll focus a lot on empathy and empathic uh, communication. Very crucial aspect to the speech. Again, when I I was working with that six-month group, uh, one of the interesting things was to see which of these guidelines am I stronger at and which am I weaker at? Very interesting, right? And I felt, especially, I found, when I, especially when I was busy, that I'd, often, I'd almost always be pretty truthful. You know, I've outgrown my shoe thing. <laughs> and I would uh, pretty much, as far as I knew, be pretty truthful, be pretty helpful. But when I was in a hurry and busy, I didn't feel like it was really coming out of a kind heart all the time. It was really interesting to see that really to notice which of these in my everyday speech do I emphasize, which am I pretty good at, which do I need to develop more. You know? And we, again, we can focus on that. We can focus that, on that in our, in our training. When I was um, once giving, preparing for um, giving a talk on... Um, skillful speech, mindful communication, I talked to my, uh, my mom. And she was interested in the topic. And she had a memory that went back 10 years of being at a lecture by a man named Robert Lifton, who was actually uh, one of my college teachers. He was a very interesting guy. He was a psychiatrist. And he, uh, pretty well known, he coined the phrase psychic numbing and did, did a lot of research about, uh, um, about trauma and did quite a bit on the effects of war and um, really uh, some beautiful human rights work as well. And my mom went to a lecture from Robert, uh, from Robert and at the lecture, uh, after he had finished, there was a time for questions and answers. And uh, someone asked a question and there was a little bit of a collective groan that went up because it was clear that the person had not really understood the talk very well. And people, I think, were waiting for him to say, no, I didn't say that at all. You, know, you misunderstood me or something that would be a little more contentious. And 10 years later, my mom remembered these 30 seconds in which Robert Lifton spoke kindly to this person and said, I can really see how you might have thought that. And he connected with her emphasized, let her feel like she wasn't stating something that was a problem. And then he brought her around to what he actually said. And it had such an impact that that, whatever, 30 seconds, one minute of speech, stayed with my mom for 10 years until the point where we were discussing it. You can see, you know, we know that. We know that effect of of that kind of, of speech, of that kind of kindness. And the fourth of the guidelines we could call appropriateness, and it includes especially, as you saw, the question of timing. And such a a beautiful emphasis, right? Always to ask, particularly for a challenging conversation, is this good timing? And to have that not be a secondary uh, aspect of speech, but really to ask, is this a good time? And I, I love the idea of the Buddha going around saying, good timing? Good timing? 
Are you speaking with good timing? <laughs> you know, but it was, it was such an emphasis, you know, the appropriateness. And another one of the emphases was, in terms of appropriateness, was to look out for when speech is distracted or to be careful with distracted speech where we're just uh, blabbering, to use a, a Buddhist technical term, that we're just kind of uh, off because traditionally it was understood that when we are just in the midst of distracted speech where we're not very conscious and where our intentions aren't clear, it's very easy for that to end up in greed, hatred, and delusion and just get lost in that. So, so with these guidelines, we can practice in different ways. We can um, take one of, the, one of the guidelines for a month, for a week, and work with it. We can look at it here at the retreat. How much do I follow the guidelines? And we'll work with that some in our practices. We can, over time, uh, really cultivate them. We can really especially focus on them in uh, practice situations. One thing I, used to, I did when we were doing the six-month group, I had the four guidelines on my wall right near the telephone. And when the telephone rung, rang, I guess, rang, I would say, truthful, helpful, good heart, good timing, hello. (laughs) And we can really work with these as intentions. Again, we want to really emphasize the power of intention in our practice. And one student I worked with, she had a difficult relationship with her teenage daughter, and she would put the four guidelines on her hand, write them on her hand, and be looking at them as she would talk to her daughter. and work with the guidelines. Sometimes I would go to a meeting and have the guidelines right on a piece of paper right in front of me. And they're helpful, you know, and they go along with these other practices. And so you can see that uh, they're also, also, as it were, spurs for mindfulness. I notice myself not telling the truth, not following one of the guidelines. I can go inside and say, what's going on? What's happening with me? What's you know, and not with, uh, not with a blaming attitude, but really to see what's there. What am I really, uh, what's really going on for me? Am I nervous? And we can begin to see, is, you know, am I trying to create a self-image, right? We can look at, we can use these as spurs for mindfulness and investigation. Very, very powerful. And I just want to finish by connecting with these other ways of mindfulness that we've been, we've been developing. Uh, that we've been cultivating this further track of combining inner and outer mindfulness at the same time. It's, a, it's another form of mindfulness. And when we talk about mindful communication, there are really a few. We can have mindful communication in relation to the ethical guidelines. We can have mindful communication in relationship to this combination of inner and outer practice. And then, as we'll explore in the uh, nonviolent communication, we can also uh, use, have a sense of mindfulness of what's going on with my, um, you know, wh- how can I really notice what's happening at the level of observation? What are my feelings? Can I have a sense of what my deeper values are? You know, and can I be, can I tune in inside to know those? It's really another form of mindfulness. And I, I, I really appreciate the way Oren has in many ways interpreted nonviolent communication as a subset of mindfulness. We've talked about that sometime. And there are aspects also of response as well, but a lot of it is, as he was saying, giving attention here, giving attention there. One of my students uh, took the four guidelines, made a laminated sheet and put it on her refrigerator in her house. Consider, expressed without harshness, well-intended, beneficial, timely, and true. And, and I actually was able in, um, I once taught at a graduate school, and we sometimes had contentious discussions. Particularly, uh, email was particularly challenging. And I, um, uh, we had a committee to look into how can we more skillfully communicate with each other. And I was on the committee. And people uh, fell in love with these four guidelines. 
and they, they didn't really care about the origins or spoken by the Buddha, but people said, we'll adopt these for our whole faculty. And so whenever we would have a faculty meeting, they would have me get up before the whole faculty for five minutes, write on a, a poster board the four guidelines, briefly talk about them, and have them out front for the whole meeting. And it changed things, right? It changed things. And people, we had some of the people with the reputation for the most unskillful speech. How can I say that non-judgmentally? They would would start to speak sometime and look straight at the poster board and say, I'm not sure that this is going to meet the guidelines, but... (laughs) And it would would typically be, it would typically be, actually, they would follow the guidelines. And so these can be used in all sorts of ways. These, you know, the the guidelines for mindfulness uh, are very effective and can be combined with these other aspects of mindfulness to really give us a lot of tools, not just personally, but in groups, in families, in communities, online, and so forth. Very, 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 very helpful. So let me close. Um, I'll close with a poem. Let's see, where did my poem go? And this is really uh, related to the fact that this is, this is ongoing practice, that our, our mindful communication practice is something that probably for most of us, we haven't trained as much as we have with the basic inner mindfulness. And so there's a need for that training and there's a need to keep it going in our lives. It's really something that, you know, that's why we want to see ways that we can give support after the retreat. And there's some things that we have in mind. Um, But very, very crucial, it's ongoing work. It's ongoing practice. We have to keep coming back, remember to have the intention have all sorts of mindful communication, post-its in our home, all sorts of tools, write the guidelines on your hand, be creative in all sorts of ways, and keep on coming back to it. And there's a, there's a poem by Pablo Neruda which expresses this sense of persistence with, with our practice. And I'll, I'll end with this. If each day falls inside each night, There exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. So it's really that quality of persistence, of patience, of continual practice, keeping on coming back very much the spirit of what we're doing. So let's just sit for a moment and let, let this uh, settle some, and then we'll go into our walking practice. <laughs> 